turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Coming up this hour, a fascinating discovery with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then we're going to be joined for three segments by American political commentator and senior editor of The Dispatch, David French. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. I'm really glad to have you joining us today on this Tuesday afternoon. Still cold out, but yeah, I still see some snow on the ground. But at the very least, it's not actually snowing as it was yesterday. So I'm in a little bit of better mood today. Hope that you're doing well. Also, I'm going on vacation at the end of this week. Friday night, me and my family are flying uh, for a couple days away into the sun of Arizona. Going to go to the Grand Canyon, go to a baseball game. And so uh, I've, I'm kind of, you know, when you've got when you've got a trip coming and you can kind of look forward to it uh, and it's really close, that's how I'm feeling right now. So looking forward to that, to getting some sun and, uh, you know, lots of good things going on. If you miss any of the show, here's what's coming. Uh, beginning at about in the second segment at about 419, David French, uh, somebody that we quote on this show all the time. He's very well known American political commentator, uh, used to be in the United States Army. Uh, he is the senior editor of the dispatch. David French writes at the French press. And if you've been around this show for any amount of time, especially when Ian and I were together, we would almost read David French on a weekly basis. Uh, I have a huge amount of respect for David French. And he will, you might totally disagree with the things he's going to say, but he's going to make you think. He talks so eloquently about the intersection of politics uh, and, and our faith. And I can't wait to spend uh, three solid segments with David French. Before we do that, saw something really fascinating at NBC News. Uh, it, the title reads this. Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls discoveries are first ancient Bible text to be found in 60 years. A 6,000 year old skeleton of a partially mummified child and a 10,500 year old basket were also discovered. Think about those, uh, what I just read there, uh, and, and the, uh, the age of those things. It says the Israel Antiquities Authority announced Tuesday that a four-year archaeological project uncovered portions of the book of the 12 minor prophets, including the book of Zechariah and Nahum. Uh, it was the first such discovery in 60 years. And as I said, also discovered were a 6,000-year-old skeleton and a 10,500-year-old basket, which Israeli authorities said could be the oldest in the world. A CT scan revealed the child's age was between 6 and 12, with skin, tendons, and even hair partially preserved. Among the recovered texts, which are all in Greek, is Nahum uh, 1, 5 through 6, which says the mountains quake because of him and the, he- the hills melt. The earth heaves before him the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his wrath? Who can resist his fury? His anger pours out like fire. The rocks are shattered because of him. Uh, Nahum 1, 5 through 6. It said the authority said these words differ slightly from other Bible versions, shedding a rare light on how biblical texts change over the time. 
from its earliest forms. As you may know, the first set of Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, these were the first sets to be discovered. Uh, the first sets uh, of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found by a Bedouin shepherd in the same area in 1947 and are considered by many to be the most important archaeological finds in the 20th century. Uh, it's it's fascinating. I had a chance when I was at Wheaton College to spend a summer on a program called Wheaton in the Holy Lands. And uh, it, we spent like four days. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. A week and a half in Greece following Paul's second missionary journey. And then we were all over Israel for a little bit over a month. And then we ended the trip spending four or five days in uh, Rome. But I will never forget uh, part of our time uh, in Israel. We went to the spot where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the story is amazing. In 1947, this Bedouin shepherd was walking his sheep and he just threw a rock into a cave that went deep. And he heard, if I remember the story correctly, he heard it rattle around like it just sounded weird. And he was going, what was that? And he went in and lo and behold, it was the canisters holding the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, most of the Dead Sea Scrolls are in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, but both Jordan and Palestinian Authority have disputed their ownership. Uh, and so uh, this is just a pretty amazing thing that they found these days. And also, while we we're on that Wheaton in the Holy Lands uh, trip, uh, we got to visit archaeological sites. And it is a painstaking deal that these archaeologists do. A lot of us, when we think archaeology, we think Indiana Jones, but it's certainly not that. But instead, uh, it is just painstaking with a brush, a, a small you know, shovel or whatever else, because they have to make sure that nothing gets disturbed. But what they uncover is just history, often biblical history coming to life. Like, okay, we read about this. This is what this is. This is uh, what this is. It says these remarkable discoveries were made during an Israeli project to prevent looting in the Holy Land, which experts say has been a constant threat to undiscovered artifacts since the first Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, so this is just I wanted to start with this because a lot of times we can read our Bibles and just become very disconnected. Like it's not real world stuff. Like it didn't really happen. And what these archaeologists do for us is they show us uh, the continuity of scripture, uh, the uh, historicity of things that we read in the New Testament and the old. It, it, it just kind of the Bible comes to life. You know, if you've never had the opportunity to visit Israel, I would really encourage you to do so. I like I said, I was able to spend a summer there, which I know is something that most people will never be able to do. But I was able to spend a summer there and even get college credit for it. That wasn't a bad deal. But uh, I was able to spend a summer there. And what happens is as you walk around Israel, as you go uh, into the desert regions and the Negev, and as you go to the area of the Sea of Galilee, as you park yourself in Jerusalem or go out to Bethlehem and you start to see these things that you read about in the Bible, these areas where Jesus walked, it is it is life changing. Uh, and so albeit for me to sound like a, a representative of the Israeli tourist agency. But I would encourage you, uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, to at some point in your life, try to make that trip because it really is uh, wild. You know, you stand alongside the banks of the Jordan River and and it's life changing, as I said. And so uh, I found this to be a fun way to start the show. Dead Sea Scrolls Discoveries, our first ancient Bible text to be found in 60 years. Uh, continuing 
to find things uh, from many, many, many generations ago. We're off and running here on The Common Good. Glad to have you with us for the rest of the hour. I can't encourage you enough to stay with us. We're going to be joined by David French, who serves as senior editor of The Dispatch. David French is going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you join us today. Uh, and we are thrilled to be joined uh, for multiple segments here by somebody that if you listen to The Common Good at all, you know we reference his blog posts and his articles uh, almost on a weekly basis. He's an American political commentator, former attorney, all sorts of different things, serves as senior editor of The Dispatch. That is David French. David, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into uh, what we want to talk about today, could you just introduce yourself to our audience however you'd like? Yeah, sure. Um, David French. I'm a, a senior editor at The Dispatch, which is a new uh, conservative uh, media company started in 2019. I'm also a columnist for Time Magazine, recovering lawyer, and uh, <laughs> let's see, what else? Um, uh a superhero aficionado who is absolutely ecstatic about the Snyder cut being released of Justice League being released on uh, Thursday on HBO Max. There you go. I just watched uh, <laughs> what ever since the pandemic, we started watching the Marvel movies. I'd never seen any of them. And now we've got like eight in a row because my daughter's like, let's just keep watching them. So uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Totally be great. Well, again, uh, David blogs at the French press at frenchpress.thedispatch.com. Uh, and you came out with one the other day called Cruelty is Apostasy, Reflections on Beth Moore's Departure from the Southern Baptist Convention. We've talked a lot on this show about kind of how big a deal Beth Moore's yeah. departure is from the Southern Baptist Convention. Could you speak to that and also what you talk about is like the what really concerns you about that whole episode of her leaving? Yeah. So for people who don't know Beth Moore and an awful lot of Christian listeners will know Beth Moore, but there are some obviously who who won't. She's one of the most prominent Bible teachers in America, one of the most prominent Southern Baptists in America. I mean, millions of people have participated in her Bible studies. Right. She has packed stadiums. Um, I mean, she has, you know, when she dove into Twitter, she immediately accumulated, you know, almost a million followers. That's right. She's one of the more prominent uh, public Southern Baptist public figures in the United States and and much beloved. Now, there's always been controversy a little bit or to some degree, some controversy about her role in the SBC. Mm -hmm. um, she's always adopted the point of view that uh, women should not be senior pastors at Southern Baptist churches. But she has on very uh, rare occasions preached on Sunday morning, which has caused some controversy. And there are people who have critiqued her prominent teaching role. But she's always been in the Southern Baptist tent, you know, that that's right. She's always she there's never been any real question as to whether or not she belongs in the Southern Baptist Convention. But she left. She left. And she left in part because or in large part because in 2016, she be, came out in opposition to Donald Trump, uh, as a number of other Christian public figures did. Mm -hmm. And then also sort of really became a leading figure in exposing and uh, sexual abuse in the church, supporting victims of sexual abuse in the church, and also of opposing Christian nationalism in the That's church right. and white supremacy. And 
Um, so she was called all kinds of things, woke, cultural Marxist, et cetera, et cetera. But even beyond that sort of like petty name calling, she was subjected to just a hurricane of abuse. Um, if you doubt that, I, I, you know, not that you would want to spend all your time doing this, but you can go onto YouTube and you can just start going down the rabbit hole of Beth Moore criticisms. And the mockery and the condescension was ju- is just off the scale. And so one of the reasons why I wrote what I wrote is I, I've just always been stumped by the idea that a person can feel quite self-confident in their biblical orthodoxy when speaking in sneering, condescending, wrathful terms about the role of women, for example, in the church or Beth Moore's politics – yet exhibit, exhibit none of the fruits of the Spirit. Because aren't the fruits of the Spirit biblical <laughs> orthodoxy also? Or the yeah. characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13, aren't they fruits of, or aren't they biblical orthodoxy as well? And yeah. so if you're a guardian of biblical doctrine, but you don't exhibit these biblical virtues, um, you know, I, I think there's a deep, deep inconsistency there. Uh, that's really well put. Uh, this idea of cruelty, would you say uh, culturally it feels like we're crueler as a yeah. people? And and Christian culturally, as you've pointed out, it also feels like we're more cruel. And, and I really appreciate you pointing that out. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, am I right that we're more cruel? But why do you think that is something that's growing and becoming more of a hallmark of who we are, even as Christians? Yeah, that that's a really good question. I don't know that there's any way to do sort of an empirical measure of increases in cruelty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but I do know that we have been able to do empirical measures of increases in animos in increase in animosity. Mm. And so one of the things that we have been able to measure is that in the last 30, 40 years, there has been a dramatic increase in animosity between right and left in this country. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that as animosity increases, cruelty increases. Mm-hmm. And then you combine that with sort of a social media environment that says that you are your worst tweet or you mm-hmm. are your worst moment. That is who you are. So that, and this happens constantly. I might write in defense of somebody and say, you know, I, uh, you know, I either agree with their ideas or I think they've been wrongly, wrongly maligned. And time and time again, I'll get a, something sent to me in my timeline that's like, oh, you mean this person with some tweet tweet from three years ago that's, you know, bad or rude yeah, or yeah. impolitic or whatever. And that's how we're defining people. I, I was actually just speaking to somebody, um, a seminary student, and I was just speaking to him and I said, let me translate this into terms that we could understand in, you know, in a sort of a biblical context. Imagine, you know, Peter denied Christ three times. But then later becomes, you know, an apostle of Jesus Christ in and in, in foundational to the building of the early church. If Peter was running around in 2021, every time he opened his mouth, somebody would tweet out his denials hmm. of Christ and say, this you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he would never be able to escape that. He would never because there would be constantly people broadcasting his worst moment to the world again and again and again and again and using it to discredit him despite his repentance. Yeah. And that's kind of the world we're in right now. Yeah, it is. Uh, so one of the phrases we hear almost ad nauseum in uh, in the news and then social media is cancel culture. How is the, what you're describing 
cancel culture versus, you know, where are there times where someone should be, quote unquote, canceled versus how has our culture just gone too far down that road right now? Yeah, that's a really good question because cancel culture, like a lot of terms, has become the term cancel culture has become weaponized. (laughs) Like the term woke has become, I mean, right. as soon as a, a term sort of gains some cons- currency, it's weaponized. But so, yeah, I think that there is there are circumstances in which people do things that are dreadful enough to which there should be consequence. But there are also times in which people are wrongly punished for good faith disagreement. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I wrote about this um, in The Washington Post years ago. When uh, wrote, I, I don't know if you remember that there's been so many of these controversies. Roseanne Barr lost her her own TV show. I remember. Yep. After she said something vile and racist about Valerie Jarrett, the Obama senior Obama administration advisor. And at the same time, there were other cancel culture controversies going on. For example, Colin Kaepernick, who was being um, vilified for taking a knee. James Damore, the Google software engineer who was fired after writing a sort of libertarian minded um, exploration of why there are gender disparities in software engineering. And I, I put it like this. I said, as much as possible, then there's going to be, there's going to be gray areas here, but as much as possible, can we make a difference, a distinction between good faith and bad faith? Hmm. If, if somebody is in good faith attempting to engage in the culture, even if it's in a way that we profoundly disagree with, we should err on the side of giving people who are in, uh, who we believe in in are engaging in good faith and opportunity to engage. Yeah. But if someone is just bad faith, if someone is um like in the Roseanne Barr situation or some of the efforts that you saw say for example designed to overturn the election in 2020, um there are people who who engage in bad faith in the public square and there should be consequences for that. That's right. There should be consequences for that. Now, not from the government, the first amendment applies to speech in good faith. It applies to speech in bad faith. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about how do we use our own speech, how do we use our own uh, power if we have a position in a private company, I think think that we need to really start trying to figure out, hey, look, if somebody's disagreeing with me, even on something that's profoundly important that, you know, their position might uh, upset me in some way, Mm -hmm. we got to give room for good faith discussion. But if somebody's just trolling... (laughs) <laughs> if somebody's just being a jerk, <laughs> you know, I don't have to use whatever sort of voice or or market power that I have to yeah. carve out a space for that. That's absolutely right. That other voice here is David French. Uh, he is senior editor of The Dispatch, American political commentator, uh, and the uh, blog. He writes at his blog post, The French Press. There's also a website called thedispatch.com. You were talking before the break just about Beth Moore and the cruelty uh, that is kind of going on around it, just our culture, a little bit of cruelty. Uh, you people may not know this. You are a real lightning rod. You are somebody that's <laughs> been kind of a focus of particularly the very kind of uh, far right pr- uh, pro Trump crowd. And and I'm sometimes I'll read the stuff written about you and just be like, man, I don't know how you take it. So so I'm wondering, how has that been for you? Do you enjoy the fight or is it really hard for you? It comes with the territory. What do you do with all that you've uh, kind of taken on? Well, I will tell you what is it is not enjoyable to be lied about. It is mm-hmm. not enjoyable to have your family attacked. It is not enjoyable to experience online harassment or real world harassment. Yes. None of that is enjoyable. Um, and it's, 
you know, so when I was writing about Beth more, I was writing from a position of knowing in, you know, in different ways and to different degrees, a bit of what she's gone through Hmm. and to know what it's like to, uh, you know, in, in particular, I think the thing, the thing that is, uh, I mean, obviously the thing that's the worst is when somebody, uh, you know, threatens you or threatens your family or, Hmm. or takes concrete action in the real world to try to destroy you. Um, that's the worst, but the second worst is lying. Yeah. Is the lying and the mischaracterizations. And, and one of the things that is about that is there are all kinds of people right now who are walking around uh, this country who believe things that are just flat out false about me, just flat out false. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at some point you just have to realize you can't correct it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in, and in fact, here's the kind of the crazy thing about it is that sometimes if you elevate, if you have a public voice and you try to correct a lie, one of the inadvertent things that you often do is end up spreading it more. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so, you know, especially if people are predisposed not to like you because of politics or religious disagreements, they will, even if I rebut the lie, they'll still believe the lie because it's sort of an ideological imperative to believe the lie. So, yeah, a lot of that is there's nothing enjoyable huh. about that. But what is enjoyable is engaging with people in good faith. Like what is enjoyable is having meaningful conversations, even disagreeing and even disagreeing, you know, with some real emotion and, 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 you know, a conviction about things that really matter and talking them through in good faith. That's fantastic. I really like that. I've learned from it. I, you know, have changed as a result of those kinds of conversations, but I, I draw a pretty bright line difference between the, the hatred, the lies, and then the dialogue and the discussion. Uh, that's helpful. Uh, speaking of lying, I, I do want to get your uh, thoughts w- about conspiracy theories and especially yeah. conspiracy theories within the church. Uh, a lot of us, Christianity Today ran an article just today or yesterday about uh, literally pastors who are quitting because how, how many people in their congregations believe the lies of QAnon and other yeah. things. Uh, are you surprised? Well, let me ask it this way. What is the danger as people start to believe in conspiracies theories, particularly in the church? And what's the answer for pastors, for elders, just for churches in general right now? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Look, the dangers, we've, we've seen the dangers with our own eyes. I mean, for yeah. example, one of the dangers of believing in conspiracy theories is that some segment of Americans will storm the Capitol building and beat police officers with American flags. Like that's mm. that's a danger of conspiracy theories. And I'm staring right now on my computer screen at another danger of conspiracy theories or or misinformation, maybe a better way to describe it. And that is I'm looking at the va- available vaccine COVID-19 appointments at the county, just one county south of me at one location. And this is for tomorrow. One of the it's they have 20 slots per half hour. OK, um, three of 20 slots filled, two wow. of 20 slots filled. Another one, two of 20 slots filled. That's a consequence of misinformation is you have a, uh, you know, this pandemic ending vaccine, life saving vaccine available. And yet people won't take it mm-hmm. they just won't take it and people will die as a result of this they this will cost lives and so you know we have we're in the middle of a situation where we have experienced the fruits of misinformation and conspiracy in very bitter ways yeah. um 
you know, talking about, for example, anti-masking, misinformation around masking that costs lives. And so, um, yeah, it's absolutely imperative that we deal with it. But what's also really important for people to understand is this is often not an intellectual exercise. It's often not a matter of just sending somebody the right fact check. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what it's more typically a matter of is dealing with um, this is these conspiracies involve a sense of community, a sense of belonging. Mm-hmm. It's part and parcel of being a part of a of a of, uh, you know, a a small group at a church. It's part and parcel of being a part of a political tribe. It's part and parcel of your fr- uh, being a, a, in a friend group. And these kinds of things provide people with not just a sense of purpose, with, but with a sense of fellowship. Yeah. And so it's so that's what makes it, these things entrenched so much. It's not that the right fact checks haven't gone viral enough. It's that this is where people are finding their fellowship and their purpose. Yeah, I think you're on to something there. So what's the answer for the church? If you were leading a church or your pastor just said to you, David, what, what do we do about this? What what are some concrete steps that you think pastors and churches can be taking right now to to fight exactly what you're talking about with these conspiracy theories? You know, I got a tr- awesome email from a, a a reader the other day. And this, this uh, reader said, you know, here's what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm reconnecting with my mother. Um, not from the standpoint of connecting by fact checks and and uh, articles and media content, but just by being with her and spending time with her. Hmm. And I think that that's one of the things is that if you have a toxic community, you can't replace something with nothing. Hmm. And so rather than sort of leading with the fact check, um, I feel like we have to lead with healthier building and sustaining healthier communities yeah. um, and and lead with and, and lead by example, you know, engaging with people that, you know, who are, um, you know, who are given into the these conspiracy theories, loved ones that, you know, who are given into these conspiracy theories, not from a standpoint of fact checking, but from a standpoint of fellowship and friendship and then being somebody who is trustworthy yourself, hmm. um, I think is absolutely critically important. Absolutely. Again, that other voice here is David French, uh, American political commentator, former attorney, U.S. Army veteran. Uh, he writes, he is the senior editor of The Dispatch, and you can also find him at thedispatch.com. And also he blogs at the French Press. Well, David is super generous with his time today. And here's what I wanted to ask you. A lot of times as pastors uh, or just as Christians, we'll hear people say, or sometimes we'll say ourselves from the pulpit, uh, that it's harder now to be a Christian than ever culturally. Like things are worse now than they've ever been. Uh, I just would love your your response to that. Do you believe that to be true? And and if not, uh, why why would that not be true? Yeah, I don't, I really don't think that's true. Now, when I say I don't think that's true, that doesn't mean that I don't think that there are threats, for example, to religious liberty. It doesn't mean that I don't think that there are cultural headwinds running against Christians, especially in many parts of the country. Mm -hmm. But to say that there are areas of concern, and there are areas of concern, is not the same thing as saying everything's worse now than it's ever been. Yeah, yeah. In fact, if you wanted to rewind the clock, you can go back 25, 30 years 
And by many objective measures, things were worse. And a lot of people forget this. For example, the divorce rate was a lot higher. Hmm. The abortion rate was a lot higher. Um, the, you know, in recent years, we've seen an upsurge, an uptick in the number of kids who live in intact mother, father, married families. Um, crime rates, my goodness, crime rates were so much worse. And, so, and then from a legal standpoint, religious liberty was on the ropes. I mean, hmm. religious liberty had just suffered a terrible blow at the Supreme Court of the United States in a case called Employment Division v. Smith. So you had less a concrete religious liberty doctrine. You had much higher abortion rates. You had many fewer abortion laws restricting abortion. You had higher divorce rates. You had skyrocketing illegitimacy, you know, and um, out of wedlock births. That was 30 years ago. But a lot of people would say, well, everything's so much worse now. Yeah. No. By so many objective measures, it's better. In fact, if you look at religious liberty, there's a 10 year long winning streak in the Supreme Court of the United States for religious freedom, 15 cases, 15 mm. cases decided most of them by more than five, four uh, that have consolidated and expanded religious liberty in the United States of America. But what has changed? People have accurately since to changed a change. And one of the things that has changed is, is true that sort of this white Protestant Christian establishment is weaker. Um, but that's not the same thing as saying there's less liberty. So there's mm. the a lot of the sort of the white Protestant church has lost power, but it's gained liberty. So here's here's what I mean. The difference between power and liberty is power feels like liberty when you're powerful because powerful people do what they want. Right. But yeah. liberty is something you exercise against power. That's something you're able to do even if you're out of power. So free speech if I'm out of power and I have the liberty of free speech, I can still speak to power. Um, so if you roll back the clock about 100 years or so, the white Protestant establishment was near the apex of its power. It could even pass prohibition, for example, which was a definite Christian move in the United States. Mm -hmm. But religious liberty in the U.S. was in a very unhealthy place because at that same time, there are these anti-Catholic Blaine amendments that were just covering up American states. And so... That's a difference between power and liberty. White Protestants had power. American Catholics had no liberty. So what's happening now is we have not as much power, but we have more liberty. And when you lose power, that's hard. Yeah. And a lot of people don't like that trade-off. They don't like the trade-off of saying, I'd rather have the power than the liberty. Mm -hmm. That's that's good. That's I'm glad I asked you that question, because it's something I as a pastor just wrestle with, because I'll say it sometimes like, right, stuff's just so hard right now. But I think that is a really good perspective. While we have you on, I want to make sure to talk about vaccines. Uh, you sure. wrote another great blog post that basically linked for Christians taking the vaccine uh, with the biblical call, the, the call from Jesus to love our neighbor. Can you flesh that out? And what do you do with people who are just fundamentally against the vaccine? Yeah, you know, I, so there's a couple of one of the things that you you want to know is not just what are the reasons why a person says they're against the vaccine, because people will have, you know, a factual assertion, a factual assertion, B, factual mm -hmm. assertion, C. It goes back to our discussion in the previous segment. A lot of this is part of a, uh, a partisan marker. Uh, it's part of it is even part of a religious marker. For example, white evangelicals are the community most likely to reject the vaccine of all American religious subgroups. Um, mm. Republicans, white Republicans are more likely to re reject the vaccine than any other political subgroup. 
So what part of what's going on here is this has become partisan. It's become tribal. It's become part of a community affiliation. And so anytime that's what's going on, just like we said last time, just sending fact checks isn't enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what you're wanting to do is you're wanting to appeal not just to sort of the the head, but also to the heart. And that's where I think it's very important for, um, you know, for us to start to speak in sort of theolo- basic sort of Christian values terms as opposed to side effects terms that says, you know, uh, uh, talking about love of neighbor, talking about how does this, how do we fit in into our community? Are we a toxic presence in our community or are we a loving presence in our community? Because one of the really critical things about this vaccine is that it's very critical that we get to herd immunity as quickly as we can, in part because this vac- this virus is mutating. Mm. And the longer we go without herd immunity, the more opportunity there is for this sort of mutation process to begin to take its toll. Uh, saying, thankfully, so far, the vaccines have been very effective against yeah. these mutations. But I think it's very important as for we as Christians to not look at us, our, ourselves as sort of I, we're not an island. We're part of a community and mm-hmm. we need to be thinking about uh, our role in that community in ending this pandemic that has taken more than half a million lives in a year. And so that's more of a that's not so much of a here are the facts of the Moderna vaccine or here are the facts of the Pfizer vaccine. It's more like here is your role as a follower of Jesus Christ in this place, in this time, in helping end a deadly scourge. Yeah. Uh, David, with the last couple minutes that we have here, uh, as you know, uh, our our show here is very focused on the church and evangelicalism. And I was going to ask you, are you hopeful for the church? But I guess I'd ask it this way. What are one or two things you'd like to see change in the trajectory of evangelicalism right now that would get us back to the part where we're lights in the darkness, where we are <laughs> uh, salt, where we are making a difference in the world? What are a couple of things that maybe you're hopeful for that will change uh, in the church uh, in America? Yeah, well, you know, first we got to acknowledge that there's just so many Christians on all sides of the political aisle who are salt and light in just mm-hmm. indispensable ways, and we have to acknowledge that and and be grateful for that. But I also think it's absolutely critical to disentangle the church from partisanship. Mm. I think that's just an abs. And that's not to say disentangle from politics. I mean, politics is a part of life, and yeah. it, it is a part of living in a community. And and so I don't think that Christians should withdraw from politics, but there's a difference between politics and partisanship. Because what ends up happening when you see yourself through a completely partisan lens is you begin to identify with individuals and with institutions, often for unbiblical reasons, mm-hmm. um, because you're, you're, you're yoked t- together. Um, you're yoked together in this partisan enterprise. And you know, one of the things that I really worried about in the sort of in the last five years was how much was the angry disposition of the GOP influencing the church mm-hmm. versus the fruits of the spirit in the church influencing the angry disposition of the GOP? Yeah. And um, given the incredible um, unity between white evangelicals and the and the Republican Party. In my experience, it'd be interesting to see if listeners disagreed with this. In my experience, I've seen the angry resentments of the GOP um, influence the church more than I've seen the fruits of the spirit 
influence the GOP. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's a, a kind I think there's sort of three tasks, big tasks right now um, to sort of start to repair our culture. One is disentangling the church from partisanship so that it is it is seen by the you know, it's by fair minded observers in the world as having primary allegiance to Jesus rather than team red or team blue. So disentangle the church from partisanship, defeat toxic reactionary populism on the right and defeat toxic illiberalism on the left. And those, those three um, tasks are related and inter- in interlinked. Uh, and so I think those are, that's a, that's a major, both religious and secular uh, quest for us to sort of repair uh, and reach a healthier body politic. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's a challenge and it's it's a great challenge Huge. you've put before us for sure. For and all sure. the cultural the cultural winds are against us on that's right. <laughs> on that point. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, David, before we let you go, this has been our pleasure. Uh could you give us website, social media, all sorts of different places where people can find you? Yeah. Um I'm very easy to find on Twitter. Um at David A. French is I'm on Twitter, and you can follow me on uh go to the dispatch.com. And my newsletter is there, the French Press. My podcast is there, Advisory Opinions, um, and uh, lots of great content from my colleagues at the Dispatch. It's just a fantastic place for sober-minded news and analysis that avoids hot takes and Absolutely. falls and tr- tries to defy the uh, panic-driven, um, hyper angsty news cycle <laughs> yeah and as ones who appreciate it we read it on this show all the time and so fantastic we are we are great before it again david french uh senior editor of the dispatch david this has just been a great joy thanks for being so generous and joining us today oh thanks so much for having me i really appreciate it absolutely you're listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Coming up this hour, how can apologetics continue to flourish post-Ravi Zacharias? And then the Great Commission must be our guide in these polarizing times. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, my friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this uh, cold, gray, but not snowing Tuesday afternoon. So take what you can get. I was talking to someone yesterday about the baseball season that is coming. In fact, my son is he had an indoor baseball game last night, which was just really fun to hear, like the ping of the bat to see the boys playing again. But, uh, you know, we were talking about the upcoming White Sox and Cubs seasons, and they said tickets are going on sale, especially for season ticket holders. Just the idea of, all right, here we go. Games are happening. People are going to be allowed in the stadium. That's a step in the right direction. Vaccines are rolling out more and more each day. Although, man, what was was that? David French told us off air the other No, it was on air. He told us that crazy story in the first hour that uh, in Tennessee, where he is, one of the dangers is that literally the slots in the county by him, there'll be you know, 20 slots per half hour and three people, two people, just people not wanting to take the vaccine, which I, I guess I get. I understand it, but uh, but would really hope that people will continue to do so so that we could continue co- uh, as a society, culturally moving out into greater normalcy. You might be one of those people going, well, let's just be normal anyway. Totally get where you're, where you're coming from. But uh, the vaccine is certainly going to speed that up for many people. And uh, so therefore, we're looking forward to that. The light at the end of the tunnel, baseball, 
COVID coming down, you know, kind of slowing down. There is the scary news of these variants and stuff, but I'm going to choose to continue to look at the bright side and say, I think we're going, by the way, my kids, we got emails this weekend. Uh, no, yesterday we got emails saying that after spring break, so beginning on like April 6th or April 7th, uh, my kids, I've got one in elementary school, one in middle school, one in high school, and all three of them are going back to full-time in-school learning. Uh, it's been okay so far through this time. We've been on mostly this hybrid schedule where uh, you know, they'll be in school, but then have a little bit of remote learning over Zoom or whatever else it might be. But now they're bringing them back. And so still with masks and social distancing, but get them into that school, get them learning, not only for just some normalcy, but it, it really is important what you're seeing. Uh, the studies of of just kids were not meant to be learning at home. I don't think kids are meant to be socializing. And so I understand what we had to do for the COVID pandemic and for uh, for health and safety measures. Uh, but I think all the data, if we're going to follow the science, I think the data is saying, get these kids back in school. Uh, that, that is what needs to happen. So I'm thrilled that my kids will be. I hope that continues to be the trend and it points towards the fall being pretty much back to normal for the school. So we'll see. That's my hope. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. Well, uh, something we've been talking about here on The Common Good over the last couple of weeks, and really in the two years that we've been doing this show, is uh, the idea of celebrity culture, uh, Christian celebrity culture, I should say, and and how damaging that has been to the witness of the church as we've seen scandal after scandal, whether it be James McDonald or Mark Driscoll or Bill Hybels or Carl Lentz uh, or... Uh, the biggest one probably recently was Ravi Zacharias, uh, and say, um, and so what? What I found this article at Christianity Today, and it's about the Ravi Zacharias uh, story, and it says this: Apologetics can flourish after Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, but only with quote lowercase leaders in the local church. This is written by Justin Ariel Bailey, and it says to detractors, Ravi Zacharias's fall means the end of a movement. But his demise reminds us to deepen our core commitments to gospel work. Let me just read a little bit of this. When Ravi Zacharias International Ministries confirmed the reports that Ravi Zacharias was guilty of calculated serial sexual abuse, I was gutted. I remember listening to Ravi's program on the radio when I was in high school and hearing him hold a packed auditorium spellbound in college. I devoured as much of his content as I could. He seemed to me to be a modern day C.S. Lewis, marrying reason and imagination, satisfying heart and mind, moving effortlessly between Malcolm Muggeridge and the Moody Blues. Upon reflection, I realized that part of the pride I felt in hearing Ravi had to do with him looking like me as a Filipino-American who grew up in a predominantly white spaces. Ravi, an India-born Canadian-American, seemed to represent a best-case scenario of what I could become. Among other things, uh, he gave me hope of being accepted by mainstream culture, a culture that could be conquered through education, erudition, and eloquence. He's going to go on to talk about the role that Ravi Zacharias played uh, in his life. And then he says, has Ravi's fall revealed the folly and failure of popular apologetics? What effect, if any, will it have on the apologetics community more broadly? Apologetics, is, traditional apologetics is uh, making a defense of the faith. It's kind of that... Uh, debate and making a defense, trying to answer the hard questions that get posed to Christianity. Uh, it says it's responding to the objections to the Christian 
belief. It says most contemporary texts on the topic include a defense of apologetics against its cultural despisers. But he's now going to ask, what is apologetics? If, if, if Ravi Zacharias was the apologist, what have we learned and what's the way forward for apologists out there, for defenders of the faith? He says, as I've listened to the conversations taking place among apologetics practitioners, four themes have emerged. I think these are important as we talk about not just Ravi Zacharias, but as we talk about celebrity Christian culture. I think it plays to a lot of this. He says, number one, demonstrate a commitment to truth, even when the consequences hurt. He says, apologists have traditionally presented themselves as fearless pursuers of the truth. But when questions were raised about Ravi's personal character, some truths were off limits. And yet, as the late Dallas Willard used to say, reality is what we run into when we are wrong, a collision in which we always lose. Uh, in times of tribalism and political polarization, we're tempted to seek out truth only insofar as it legitimizes us being right. So he says one of the observations as he's looked at the Ravi Zacharias situation, the scandal is uh, be defenders and of truth, ones who want truth. Number two, distinguish, but don't divide the message from the messenger. After Ravi's fall, voices in the apologetics community processed feelings of grief and betrayal on their public pa- platforms. A consistent chorus was emer- has emerged. Look to Jesus. Trust Jesus, who is never guilty of abuse of any kind. Apologists are at their best when they point people to Jesus. Paul told the Corinthians that we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's a difference, however, in making the distinction before and after a scandal has been exposed. Uh, he goes on to say, for those who wonder about the help they receive from disgraced leaders, the distinction matters. Students of church history remember the uh, Donatist who argued that the value of pastoral acts depended on the purity of the one performing it. Uh, in response, the church rejected this. As the church recovers from the fall of Zechariah, leaders who care about the Christian apologetics movement can carry it forward by clinging to this truth that we do not commend the faith because we have found all the answers, but because we find ourselves in desperate need of the Savior that we commend. Number three, reclaim faith as a community project rather than an individual achievement. This is that celebrity idea. Quit holding up the individual up on a pedestal and saying, point, look at the achievements of Ravi Zacharias. No, it's a communal thing. He says the best place for belief to become believable is in local embodied fellowship. The sage on the stage or the screen can supplement and prepare the way, but must not replace the guides at our side. And finally, uh, he says, support both uppercase and lowercase apologists in context of the local church. Uh, He says, uppercase apologists, uh, apologists come equipped with answers, proofs, and compelling insights into difficult uh, questions. That's kind of what Ravi Zacharias was uh, but that uppercase practitioners need prayer and accountability. They need friends and colleagues who know them well enough to be impressed, uh, to not be impressed by them. People who love them enough to tell the truth. Most of us are not and should not strive to become uppercase apologists, he says. Rather, we seek to be lowercase apologists who are engaged in everyday conversations. We seek to bring the questions, hopes and griefs of our neighbors together with our own before the Savior who calls us to follow him. Really good word here from Justin Ariel Bailey. Kind of some of the lessons to be learned uh, from this terrible abuse scandal at the hands of Ravi Zacharias. What does it mean for the church? 
uh, going forward. Well, coming up next, I uh, want to talk a little bit about conspiracy theories and this article at the uh, Business Insider about pastors who are quitting after QAnon radicalized their congregations. That's next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on a Tuesday afternoon. Something we talked to David French about and we've talked often about on the show are conspiracy theories. And what is it that makes conspiracy theories dangerous? What is it uh, that, uh, that the church has to be careful for, right? If we as the Christ followers are to be people of the truth, then what does it mean when a lot of people around us uh, are are um, living in, are, are believing in things and sharing things that we believe are categorically untrue? Uh, and at the forefront of that is the idea of QAnon. If you're unfamiliar with QAnon, go ahead and Google it. But it's this idea uh, that is especially a far right wing um, conspiracy theories called QAnon that in many ways led to what we saw at the Capitol building on January the 6th. But I want to read to you a little bit of this article because it, it's kind of the intersection of conspiracies, theories, and social media and QAnon at the same time as the church, something we're very concerned about. If you're newer to the show, I'm a pastor by trade. I lead at Four Corners Community Church uh, in Darien here in Illinois. And uh, so we are pastors at heart. We care about the church. We want the, uh, the, the church to thrive. We want the church to be men and women of truth. We want to hold on to the gospel. We believe that the church is God's plan to reaching the, the, the world right now. Uh, and that we want to be conduits of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so when we see evangelicals or the church being spoken of in, in, in certain ways within our culture, uh, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's, it's problematic. And so this is an article at businessinsider.com and it simply caught my eye because it begins this way. The title is this pastors are leaving their congregations after losing their churchgoers to QAnon. This just came out, uh, looks like two days ago at Business Insider. It says, on the morning of the Capitol riot, Vern uh, Swaringa told his wife during a walk with their dog, something's going to happen today. I don't know what, but something's going to happen. The Christian Reformed Church pastor from Michigan had been watching for months as some members of his congregation grew captivated by videos about QAnon conspiracy theory on social media, openly discussing sex trafficking and Satan-worshipping pedophiles. He had watched as other spiritual advisors, including uh, self-proclaimed Trump prophet Mark Taylor, incorporated wild and dangerous QAnon beliefs into their sermons on YouTube and as organizers of the Christian Jericho March gathered in Washington days before the insurrection, urging followers to pray, march, fast and rally for election integrity. So when hundreds of the president's uh, supporters stormed the Capitol hours after his uh, premonition, Swearingo was shocked, but not surprised. He said, I think some of the signs had been there all along and it just all came to a perfect storm. The pastor said he had been worried about so-called Christian nationalism since 2016. Uh, he became, and in fairness, he is not somebody who voted for President Trump. He said he became uh, more concerned in 2018 when some older members in his own congregation started sending him what he described as disturbing QAnon videos. When he brought these to the attention of his superiors, he said, 
they were mostly dismissive, telling them they didn't know what QAnon was. But when the coronavirus pandemic hit, the problem grew larger and more personal. Uh, He felt increasingly uncomfortable when a large part of his congregation dismissed the pandemic as a hoax. The 61-year-old pastor has been taking the pandemic very seriously, he said, partly because his wife is at risk. It was at that point I put my foot down. I said, I'm not going to preach in front of a congregation that wants to sing and not wear masks, he said. But they still wanted me to preach in front of them without wearing a mask. He said the church offered to him a plexiglass barrier to preach behind, but he felt it would make uh, wouldn't make much of a difference in an enclosed space. He said, we agreed to separate at that point. And so it felt pretty cordial at the time. But I found out later that there were really hard feelings amongst the congregation. And many of them felt like I abandoned them. It was heartbreaking. He left the church in December and now works part-time at another church in Michigan. It goes on to say, this article goes on to say, Swaringa is not the only pastor to struggle with the rapid spread of conspiracy theories and misinformation in his congregation. A poll released in January by the Christian research organization Lifeway Research found that more than 45% of Protestant pastors said uh, they often heard congregants repeating conspiracy theories about national news events. Another survey by the Conservative American Enterprise Institute uh, found that more than a quarter of white evangelical respondents believed in QAnon and that three in five believe that President Joe Biden, uh, his election win in 2020 was, quote, not legitimate. These those rates were the highest in any religious group. The trend has prompted hundreds of evangelical pastors and faith leaders to speak out. In February, more than 1400 of them had an open letter in The Washington Post. Uh, And it goes on to talk about who some of these people are, but going to go on to say that there is a break in many churches right now between congregants who believe in these conspiracy theories in QAnon and pastors who have a hard time with it. And it's, it's causing splits. It's causing splits in churches, pastors leaving, churches splitting. And I think all of us who are pastors to some degree or another have seen this. Like, I don't you know, this whole split idea is hard to read about, but but I think we've all seen the politics of our day, the politics around us kind of not just seep its way, but storm its way into our churches. Uh, and it's been very difficult. I'm a pastor, as I just told you, it's been a very difficult season to be a pastor between the pandemic and the politics and the protests and everything else. The question is, what does unity look like now? What does it mean to speak truth? When do we speak up? When don't we and at really at the at behind a lot of this is the social media driven uh, conspiracy theories. It says it goes on to say the, the road to recovery. Uh, it says one person trying to use technology to reach more Christians who become affected by QAnon is Derek Cubulus, uh, the senior pastor of Union United Methodist Church in Ohio. He runs the quote crossover Q podcast, which offers healing for QAnon followers and family members from a Christian perspective. The pastor started the podcast after the Capitol riots and has received a wide range of listeners. He said, when I saw crosses being carried along QAnon banners and a noose of those folks marched on the Capitol, I just knew I had to do something. But from a Christian perspective, he says, while some pastors opted for private conversations, Cubulus does it publicly. He debunks theories in his podcast and he tries to bring people back. And so uh, I wanted to highlight this story for a couple different reasons. One is just to say churches are hard places right now. Uh, again, pandemic, uh, politics, protests, it's, it's, they're difficult, like much of, much of culture, because people are really buying into a lot of things on different sides right now. 
they're really buying into things on different sides. And, uh, and, and because the vitriol is so high, the us against them, the good versus evil is so I- incessant in our politics right now. It's seeping into churches. And so I do think, uh, that we need to speak truth to some of these conspiracy theories and challenge people with them as opposed to just trying to be like, pretend that, that these aren't going on. And so I, if you're part of a church, I'd encourage you. Uh, check in and, and ask your pastor, are you seeing this in our church? What are we going to do about it? What do you think we need to do about it? Uh, and, and I think you'll be fascinated by the answer. That article, again, is called After QAnon, uh, Pastors uh, Quit After QAnon Radicalized Congregation, uh, a really sobering reminder of what's going on around us. Well, coming up next, Gospel Coalition, uh, Trevin Wax writes, give me Jesus. Oh, isn't that true for all of us? Give me Jesus. Coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. It's not a great day outside, but it's better than yesterday. So hopefully we continue to be on the move towards uh, towards some better weather, just some springtime ahead of us. That is what we are all holding on to. But we hope that you're having a great day. Glad to have you with us. Uh, one of the places we often turn to here on the show is the Gospel Coalition, and this is Trevin Wax. Trevin writes a blog regularly at the Gospel Coalition, and Trevin wrote this just a beautiful three-word title, Give Me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. So let's read a little bit of what he had to say. He said, we've all been there at some point or another, weary, disillusioned, and disappointed. Your relationship with God feels distant. Your love for the word has grown cold. You go through the motions of spiritual activity, hoping to rekindle your passion, yet the wintry season hangs on until you wonder if you'll ever want to want God again, to feel the awe of the burning bush, or to yearn for the still small voice. Maybe it's the flaws in your church or the failures of leaders you once admired. Maybe it's the infighting and bickering between brothers and sisters who ought to be known more for their love and forbearance than for their Twitter takedowns or Instagram indignation. Maybe it's the loneliness that sets in after a season of hurt and pain when you wall yourself off from others in order to protect your heart, only to find yourself alone in tears, your heart hardened by suffering, your spirit discouraged by besetting sins, your soul shriveled by self-pity, your mind confused by controversy. You wonder what to believe, who to follow, or how to move forward through these icy waters. So Trevin Wax has set up there. Uh, what many people are feeling in this time of pandemic or just the normal, what we call the the valleys of our spiritual life, of our spiritual walk, these times where you just feel distant, you just feel hard hearted, you feel cold, you feel uh, like God is nowhere to be found. And, and this kind of, uh, you know, I love how he put that you struggle to want to want to know God more deeply. Well, here's his answer. Go back to Jesus. He is your first love. He is the everlasting treasure. He is the one who makes everything worth it. 
Sometimes the simplest prayers express the most profound faith, he says. When I struggle through a season of discouragement, I return to the words of the old spiritual once sung by slaves. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. In the morning, when I rise, when I'm alone, when I come to die, give me Jesus. In spiritual winter, I go to the Psalms of lament because they express the spiritual emotions I feel toward God. Psalm 88 cries out, my soul is full of trouble. But I also go to the Psalms because they express emotions I want to feel, but don't. Psalm 135 has me say, hallelujah, praise the name of the Lord. Sometimes there's a mismatch where even the Psalms born from suffering don't capture what you feel precisely because you no longer feel much of anything. And it's in that terrible state that I go to the Psalms anyway and place those fiery words on my tongue, trusting that God will rekindle my heart and inflame my passion for him. Give me Jesus. The Psalms point toward Christ, and it's in the Gospels where we encounter him afresh. In all his incomprehensible, ever-compelling glory, we see him turning over tables and excoriating injustice while lifting the head of the helpless and healing the sick and wounded. His stories engage our hearts and minds while keeping us wondering, uh, wondering forever about this detail or that. He gives us bread and fish in the wilderness and then nourishes us at his table with his body and blood. When we sing, give me Jesus, we don't merely invite comfort. We yearn for the one who often called out his disciples for having little faith. We long for the one who is close and yet distant, elusive and yet present, a savior who smashes the boxes we put him in, who can't be confined by worldly expectations because he brings news of a new and better world to come. Wax goes on to say, crying out for Jesus is more than yearning for safety. We want his ferocious goodness. The lion of Judah's roar can burst your eardrums, but in his mane, you can bury your head and cry out all your tears of sorrow. Untamable, unfathomable, unexplainable. He's a fire that bursts into a blaze, burning away our sins, yet still warming our hearts. And so, friend, he writes, wherever you may be at this time, a year after so many things in our world change, don't lose sight of the one who saved you. The one who even now sustains you when you don't sense his presence. The one who promises to complete the good work he has begun in you. We sing, give me Jesus, because we want what he wants. He is the one who prayed that we would be with him and see his glory. We sing, give me Jesus, because we trust we have been given to him. And we believe his promise that we will never be cast out. We sing, give me Jesus. Because on the cross, when the glory and love of God was manifested in the Son, bowing to his Father's will, his heart was singing for us, give me my bride. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's how he ends. That's Trevin Wax. Just really well put, because here's why I wanted to read this. You know, there's a lot of you out there, myself included, who have uh, had times of deep discouragement over this past year. This past year has been really difficult. Uh, it's been really hard. Uh, and and the question is, what are we going to do with this? Because when hard times come, we are often left feeling like God is distant. God is uh, maybe uncaring. He is not there. And we have to wrestle with what do we do in those moments? And Trevin Wack says, there's a simple prayer to pray, a simple, persp- not a simple, a perspective to take that just says, Give me Jesus, that we go into the Psalms and we pray the Psalms and we get this, we we try to boil it down to, I need to get my eyes focused again on my Savior, not on my circumstances, but on my Savior. Are you struggling today? 
are, are you just, um, you know, weary through this pandemic, uh, through the politics, through everything that we've been going through, even, you know, even something as small as snow yesterday can just be demoralizing. And what do we do when we're not just demoralized, but we are just struggling? What do we do when life seems to be crashing around us? What do we do when, here, let's use this imagery, that we're in the boat and the storm waves are raging and they're banging against uh, the side of the boat. What do we do? I think of that story when, when the storm raged and, and Peter said, Jesus, let me walk to you on water. And what did he do? Peter was able to walk as he focused his eyes on his savior. Friends, I want to ask where are your eyes focused today? What is your perspective? All the garbage going on in this world, all the difficulties, all of the struggles. What do we do with that? Trevin Wax so beautifully helps us remember, uh, that it's a, it's a perspective that says, uh, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. He is my hope. Jesus is my joy. He brings abundant life. He is where hope and salvation, forgiveness and grace are found. Not even in our dogmas and our religion. It's in, it is in Jesus. And I wanted to read that blog so we can again have our eyes focused back on him. A beautiful thing written there. Give me Jesus by Trevin Wax. You can find it at our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, we are going to end uh, our show, not by an article by Tim Keller, but by his wife, Kathy Keller, that says the Great Commission must be our guide in these polarizing times. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today. Looking forward to having some more people in here in the coming weeks. But today, uh, I am by myself. Hope that you're having a great day. Well, something we've been trying to do ever since the beginning of the pandemic is to end the show with either some good news or some inspiration or some challenge, something to keep us thinking Uh, As the day goes along, as we leave from our time together and go about our days. And with that in mind, I found this. uh, It's lengthy, but a fascinating article written by Kathy Keller. That last name may sound familiar, even if the first name does not. Kathy Keller is married to Tim Keller, someone who we've talked about often on this show. Uh, Tim Keller is a prolific writer. He's a prolific uh, speaker and pastor. He he started and led for many years Redeemer Presbyterian Church spread throughout New York City. Uh, he retired from there a few years ago, but he continues, I, I like to say, Tim Keller has written more books than than I've read in my life. Uh, and, and he continues to speak. And he's been very active, actually, surprisingly, on Twitter. And he's been speaking a lot about things like Christian nationalism and uh, critical race theory, and just really diving into a lot of the hot topics of the day, giving his pastoral wisdom, really kind of putting himself out there a little bit. Uh, and so I'm grateful for Tim Keller. Well, Tim Keller's wife uh, is Kathy Keller, and she wrote just a great thing at Gospel in Life uh, called The Great Commission. The Great Commission must be our guide in these polarizing Times. Let me just read the first sentence, and I just want to unpack this first sentence together. It says this, during these polarizing times where battles for political power or division from cultural struggles are crippling the influence of the church, we need to focus our attention and commitment to fulfilling the Great Commission. So she makes a big um, 
statement there. She makes a big presupposition, and that's that we're living in polarizing times where the battles for political power or division from cultural struggles are crippling the influence of the Christian church. I would tend to agree with her, but I wonder if you agree that if uh, – that, that, that Christians right now, especially in the evangelical church, uh, as as Christians are are trying to hold on to political power, whether it be through a candidate or however else it might be, as they're trying to fight for their own rights, as they are trying to struggle culturally around us, that it is crippling the influence of the Christian church, that it is holding back the influence that we have on the culture around us. It's a little bit it's turned into a, a little bit of an us versus them mentality, a good versus evil, if you will, and has put the church at odds with much of the culture around us. And Kathy Keller's point is uh, that right now we've lost our ability and our focus uh, on our ability, uh, she says, to call back, refocus our attention and commitment to fulfilling the Great Commission because we've allowed these other divisions and these other battles and these other culture wars she says, to cause us to lose our commitment and our focus on helping people understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've lost the Great Commission, which if you've been in churches for any amount of time, you know, Matthew chapter 28 says Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples. That we are to go. We John chapter 17, we are sent ones. We are to go into the world with what? With the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to go into the world sharing the love of Jesus Christ, speaking the truth of Jesus Christ. And Kathy Keller's point is that we've lost that a little bit culturally. I've been preaching actually the last couple of weeks on the fact that we are sent ones uh, and that that right out of John chapter 17. And what does that life look like? And I've, I've said a couple of times now that the fuel for living as sent ones, the fuel for living out the Great Commission is uh, is a recognition of the good news of the gospel in your own life. So I'll start there. Do you recognize your own need for the good news of Jesus Christ, for the good news of the gospel? Or has what was once good news become old news to you? Guys, we never outlive the gospel. Uh, our faith starts with the gospel. It maintains through the gospel. It ends. It's the beginning, middle, and end. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the story we proclaim. And then that is the one that we model. And Jesus lives self-sacrificially, not for his own rights, but for the rights and the uh, betterment of others. Kathy Keller goes on to say, today, there are many groups who, despite some very sharp differences, agree that in a new, more hostile culture, the older emphasis on preaching the gospel must be abandoned in favor of other strategies. What is being said by many in a variety of media, social, print, broadcast, is that the former approaches of Christian ministry, pe- preaching, and community life no longer address the reality of our culture. She talks about how in the past, leaders expected the Christian church as a gathered community to bridge human political differences, to preach the gospel, and help people come to faith. Today, even Christians who disagree about everything else do agree that times have changed and this agenda is no longer appropriate or effective. Uh, she talks about uh, they rightly observe that the enemies of Christianity and the secular progressive left want believers to be socially marginalized. She says canceled, excluded from public influence. Powerful voices want to forcibly impose a new regime. This progressive ideology has captured uh, much high places in our culture. Kathy Keller goes on to say, 
She says, Tim and I and many of our friends and colleagues have had agonizing conversations with members and leaders in churches uh, who are ready to leave uh, because nothing but social justice is preached and prayed about week after week. These are mature Christians who deliberately joined multiracial congregations in order to advance the gospel by demonstrating its ability to break down barriers. Here's what she's trying to say. There's a long article, but let me just sum it up. She's trying to say that while people want to say that we no longer are just called to preach the gospel, and that's true in some level, we're called to love other people, we're called to uh, be there for the marginalized, to help the helpless, uh, to give a cold cu- uh, cup of water. Uh, but her point is, we, we, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We must proclaim. We must proclaim this good word. People still need to hear the gospel. That we read that in scripture, that we still need to go and make disciples. And and we do this by how we live our lives, but also what we say and the message, the preaching, the message that we proclaim. She ends it this way. The gospel comes equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit of Jesus to change hearts. No other message has either that dynamic or that joy. That Jesus lived a perfect life and exchanged it with us in order to die the death our sin required, and that he rose and is making all things new until he finally returns to remake the heavens and the earth. That message changes everything, she writes. Hearts, minds, lives, communities, and it's our privilege to take it to the world. I wanted to end there with that to say uh, in our actions, how we treat others, uh, but also what we say and preach, may we be gospel people proclaiming uh, the life, the death, the resurrection, the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, we're glad that you were with us today. Hopefully, uh, if you missed any of the show, go find it on our podcast. We're excited tomorrow. We're going to be joined by Dr. Scott McKnight uh, and have some other things uh, ready for you tomorrow. Until then, we hope that you have a great night. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.